Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Four U.S. citizens were abducted in the Mexican border city of Matamoros in March 2023. Two were killed. They were caught up in cartel violence. Republicans retaliated with verbal rhetoric threatening military action against cartels. We're going to unleash the fury and might of the United States against these cartels. Republicans have also heated up rhetoric against cartels for the fentanyl crisis in the U.S. The real drum we should be beating for war is the one against the Mexican cartels because that's the one I'm beating. It's also a call that's popular on the campaign trail. Furthermore, I will order the Department of Defense to make appropriate use of special forces, cyber warfare, and other overt and covert actions to inflict maximum damage on cartel leadership, infrastructure, and operations. Some candidates are also calling on blockading China to halt the fentanyl crisis. We're going to have maritime operate because what's happening, China is giving the precursor chemicals to the cartels. The cartels are creating the fentanyl now. Dr. Alexander Avinia is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University. He's an expert on the politics of narcotics, drug wars, and state violence in Mexico, particularly in the 1960s and 70s. He says U.S. intervention in another Latin American country, whether politically or militarily, is historically questionable. So if we take like a longer view of how the U.S. has done in wars... And it's intervening not, in other countries. It, it's, it's not good. It doesn't yeah. tend to produce the goals or the outcomes that were intended at the very beginning, right? So, you know, I think a more appropriate way of dealing with the fentanyl issues is to meet with the president of China and to come to some sort of a, agreement to limit the ability of precursor chemicals to make their way to the United States and to Mexico, which then processed and made into fentanyl. I think that is a much more productive way. I think what frightens me about these Republican proposals is the speed with which this has become seemingly a centerpiece of their counter-narcotics approach to a real emergency. I think fentanyl has, in a certain way, changed the game because of its potential lethality and the tens of thousands of people who have died as a result of overdose. So I think that You know, in the 80s, when I went as a school kid, when I went through DARE, drug abuse resistance education, they tried to frighten us to say, if you try this particular illicit drug once, you may die, um, which wasn't true. But fentanyl is something different. It's something new. So I think for me, as someone who researches the history of drugs and drug production and, and state violence in Mexico, for me, I think the diplomatic approach to working with China instead of demonizing China on the one hand and then threatening to invade and bomb Mexico in a variety of different ways is a much more productive way to go. At first, when I first heard this proposal, I, I kind of laughed it off and said, that's ridiculous. And then when you start to hear all the nominees, the Republican presidential nominees start to talk about it and it's become seemingly a, a central component of their plank, I think it's pretty frightening. And it's just going to cause more suffering, more misery, and it's not going to accomplish its intended goal, which is to control the, the flow of illicit fentanyl from Mexico into the United States. And I would assume also that the targets would be very difficult to find if they decided to go through with this sort of targeted bombing. They're not going to find the targets. I mean, what's going to end up happening is they're going to end up bombing a poor rural village up in the mountains somewhere of Sinaloa or in Guerrero, and innocent people are going to die. I mean, the idea that they can locate 
these mass, supposedly massive laboratories where fentanyl is being made and then, you know, drone it or something like that is it, kind of a, a ridiculous proposition. Or to send special forces units into it without the consent of Mexico. I mean, that's considering the history of U.S. and Mexico, I think that's a really scary proposition. And it's going to intensify ill will between both countries when, you know, the way out of this is to work together. That's the only way to solve this drug issue is for both countries to work together on a variety of different levels diplomatically. And by thinking about where are these drugs coming from and why are people turning to these drugs to begin with? What is it about life in the United States that so many people feel the need to turn to an illicit drug like fentanyl? So fentanyl, I'm assuming, is sort of a newer market target of many cartels. And, you know, they have gone through many evolutions in the type of drugs that they provide throughout the years. Can you talk a little bit about how they sort of follow the money and sort of the evolution of how cartels have focused on what will sell? So fentanyl is an opioid, right? It's highly addictive. I mean, it's related to the creation of a really lucrative market for opioids in the United States that really begins in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I think folks uh, listening to the show probably know about the Sackler family and, and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the, the company that invented and sold oxycodone. Once the U.S. government started to restrict access to oxycodone in the mid-2000s, if I remember correctly, um, you still had millions of people who needed that opioid. And Mexican cartels realized that there was a pretty l- lucrative market, and that's why they started bringing in really high-grade, potent heroin. This heroin market would be really lucrative from about, let's say, mid 2000s up until about 2016, 2017, 2018, we started to see that in southern Mexico, specifically in Guerrero, opium poppy farmers, these small farmers who are growing the the flowers from which opium is extracted and then processed into heroin, the market had crashed and they were miserated. And, And the reason why they were miserated is because fentanyl had been introduced as a much more potent, more addictive opioid that was also much easier to smuggle. I mean, that's the advantage that fentanyl has, right? It's a, you can smuggle a large amount, well, more of it in smaller physical quantities, so it's easier to, to smuggle into the United States. And as we know, at least 90 to 92% of all illicit drugs that are smuggled into the United States are brought in through international points of entry, right? They're, they're hidden in big rig trucks. They're hidden in individual cars. And that's where it's coming in, not through uh, the Sonoran Desert, not through, you know, the mountains between New Mexico and Mexico or in the Mexico-Texas uh, border, right? They're coming yeah, in razor through. wire is not going to keep out no, fentanyl. No, 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 no. You don't have people, you know, with backpacks, you know, coming in. You know, I'm, I live in Arizona, so the, the idea that someone is, is walking through the Sonoran Desert with a backpack full of fentanyl is kind of ridiculous. This latest fentanyl epidemic is still related to this longer opioid trajectory that really goes back to the early 90s, at least with the codon episode. But I mean, you know, U.S. drug users have been bringing in heroin from Mexico since the early 20th century, right? Except the difference there was those opium poppies and heroin was not necessarily being grown and produced in Mexico. Mexico is more of a staging point for Asian or for European traffickers. A lot of this starts to change after World War II. And in the 70s, we get one of the, the first big heroin epidemic in the United States. And it's really interesting to think about how not much has changed in terms of the logic of this epidemic, the profits. You know, if anything, it's just gotten way worse. The, the, the criminal organizations have become much more sophisticated, more militarized, which is really scary. And it's created so much violence in Mexico. But it, they're still doing the same thing that they were doing in the 70s. They're responding to demand in the United States. And you have written in the past that they are supported oftentimes by the state itself. 
So my colleague and friend, uh, Benjamin Smith, he's a historian of Mexico. He has a great book called The Dope, which I highly recommend. It's a really good, readable history of the Mexican drug trade. And we've also collaborated on, on the projects. And one of the findings that, that we have come to and other historians of Mexico have come to that is that the idea of the modern drug trafficking system, political economy in Mexico arose in tandem or from within the confines of the Mexican state, particularly the PRI, the party that ruled Mexico from the late 1920s up until they were elected or voted out of presidential office in the year 2000. So, you know, if you follow that long history, you see that some of the most influential drug traffickers from the very beginning at one point had been a, a member of the Mexican government, a member of a state police force, potentially a, a general within the Mexican army. And the, the, the ruling PRI more or less had a handle on this until we get to the 1980s and 1990s. And you started to see, one, just untold riches brought in because of the cocaine trade and the emergence of the cocaine trade. And, and that then leads to the sophistication and the, and the increasing power of these drug cartels that by the late 90s, early 2000s, start to look more like paramilitary groups and not just these, I don't know if folks have seen these, these like old Mexican movies are from the 70s and 80s where the, the stereotypical narco has like a cowboy hat and a silk shirt and gold chains and boots. <laughs> you know, th- that's gone, right? Like we see now, particularly beginning in the 90s, but especially now, is if you look at any of these videos online, these people are wearing camouflage uniforms. They have really powerful weaponry coming from the United States and they look like a militia and they act like one and they go to war like one. And that's one of the reasons why since 2006, we've seen uh, so much bloodshed in Mexico. By the time we get to 2006 and the Mexican government and then under President Felipe Calderón decide to launch the Mexican army against these different paramilitarized drug trafficking organizations. Uh, that's when we really start to see the spike up in homicides. And, and now we're looking back at almost 20 years at this point of this type of militarized approach to drugs in Mexico. And 400,000 people have been killed, 400,000 homicides. At the very least, 110,000 disappeared people. I've seen estimates as probably double. This is like untold bloodshed that it becomes really hard to conceptually and analytically understand. And if you compare it with other conflicts going around the world at the same time, I mean, what's been going on in Mexico since 2006 is, is really horrific. And it's one of the bloodiest, most violent theaters in the world. Alex Avina is a professor of history at Arizona State University. His research focuses on revolutionary movements in Mexico, Mexican state violence and terrorism, immigration, and the history of narcotics production and trafficking. When we come back, violence has been normalized in some areas of Mexico that have experienced high volumes of brutality. The idea that violence has become the primary way of dealing with politics, with society, with economics, with elections, from the outside looking in, is tragic. Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Mexican President Felipe Calderón declared war on cartels in 2006. He sent over 6,000 soldiers to Michoacán. The campaign expanded to tens of thousands of army troops as well as state and federal police forces. That battle was inherited by Enrique Peña Nieto. His campaign promised a new approach, but he relied on many of the same tactics as Calderón, using ill-trained security forces to take on cartels. Mexico's current president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, urged forgiveness and an approach of abrazos, no balazos, or hugs, not bullets. 
the Mexican war on drugs appears to be unwinnable. Over 300,000 people have been murdered since 2006. Historian Alex Avina is an expert on 20th century Mexico, particularly the history of drug trafficking and state violence. He says there is historical precedent as to why Mexican leaders since Calderón have been unable to curtail the violence. This has an old story as well. Right? I think if we go back to the, the Mexican Revolution of 1910, when the first great social peasant-led revolution in the world explodes in 1910, and, and then the, the post-revolutionary government that emerges after 10 years or so of combat, a problem that's always had is to establish its, quote-unquote, rule of law or authority in the countryside, in the peripheries, in places outside of major cities in Mexico. And that's a long-held, continuous pattern that exists to this day. So one of the, based on what I've researched for my first book and my current book project, is that as a response to that, the Mexican state has tended to rely on local political bosses or the Mexican military itself as a kind of a police force for the countryside as a way to attempt to establish state rule and power in the countryside. And especially from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and to this day, what we see in, in localities like in Michoacán, where my family's from, or in Guerrero, uh, you see local military units working hand-in-hand hand with individuals who uh, they know are drug traffickers or are connected with drug trafficking organizations because they use violence as a political resource to try to establish some semblance of state power. So they're allies. It's a contingent alliance. Um, it's constantly shifting. But it's all responding to this long-held problem of how do you establish political power or state power at the local level in the countryside in areas that have been deemed to be peripheries or almost, I mean, Mexican officials talk about these areas to this day as, as somehow frontiers, right? So how do you establish state power at the frontier? Well, you negotiate and you work with people who actually live there. Who are the people who have power in these places? And many times it's people who are involved in nefarious criminal activities. I'm reading a book right now, Downtown Juarez, by Howard Campbell, an anthropologist mm -hmm. at UTEP. And um, he writes that, you know, a lot of the violence that is occurring there, yes, it, it, it involves the state and it involves the military, but it really just sort of permeates all levels of society. Teaching at UTEP, he teaches students who themselves either maybe they were set up to be part of a smuggling ring without even knowing it. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody had a, a ghost key to their trunk and they had been smuggling drugs from Juarez without even knowing it or somebody whose family was involved with cartels. So it really just kind of has seeped into all levels of society. And, you know, everybody just kind of learns to live with it. You have to. For the folks who live in those areas that are affected by high levels of violence, like my own family in Michoacan, for me, one of the saddest things, one of the most tragic things to see is how normalized this type of violence has become as a way of doing politics, as a way of interacting with communities. I mean, the idea that violence has become the primary way of dealing with politics, with society, with economics, with elections from the outside looking in, it's tragic, right? But for the folks on the ground, they have no choice. How do they come to terms on a quotidian level that the real power in their community is not the state, it's not their elected official, it's not the ejido counselor or elected official. It's a drug trafficking organization that is acting as a shadow sovereign, but a shadow sovereign that is still working with the actual sovereign that is the Mexican state, right? So they have no choice. They have to become accustomed to it or else they can't operate on an everyday level. 
once it becomes normalized to that extent, it becomes, I think, much more difficult to deal with it and to actually solve it. Um, and I think that's one of the great challenges that Mexico is going to have for decades to come. You have at least at this point one or two generations that are accustomed to horrific levels and forms of violence that they have personally witnessed, they have lived through, their family have lived through. So so what what are they going to do with that, right? And that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. But it's a challenge that Mexico cannot solve by itself. Because again, to go back to the drug issue, the demand is coming from the United States. And for the last 15 years, 20 years, the weaponry, the technology of repression that allows, that empowers these drug trafficking organizations to do what they do is coming from the United States. So this has to be, a, at the very least, a binational issue. But now many other countries are also involved. So really, to deal with the issue of the illicit drug consumption and production, it always it started off in the early 20th century as a global issue with the very first convention that countries around the world organized to criminalize opium. And it's a global issue now. But the United States and Mexico relationship is a peculiar one, and it's going to require really deft collaboration to solve this issue. Well, you're talking about how violence is normalized in Mexico, and that's something people in the U.S. are very sanitized to. Politicians, uh, with their rhetoric, they tend to really paint Mexico really as this incredibly violent place Mm -hmm. and the immigrants who are coming over, they're just going to be up to no good. Um, But going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, many Republicans in particular who want to target militarily cartels in Mexico, I don't know if they realize that that violence could spill over onto especially border communities. And there's a really interesting thing about border communities, people who are not from the border, they probably don't realize that Border communities on the U.S. side are some of the safest places, but yet just, you know, a mile or so across the border, it is some of the most violent. And by taking military action in Mexico, that is going to more than likely erase that trend of being a safe border community. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I can't even envision this happening, right? But if it did happen, you're also going to see not just potential spillover effects, but you're going to see mass population displacement from Mexico into the United States. We've seen that around the world in the last 20 years, right? We've seen that when some sort of U.S. or U.N. or NATO-led intervention in the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, they go in there, they destabilize the particular political order. Lots of people are going to move, right, as a way to escape that violence and to seek a better life. And in a way, these countries or these multilateral organizations end up generating the very problem that they now say is their main problem, right? You guys <laughs> created it. So you see it with, we're in Texas, right? We can talk about these horrific, tragic stories of migrants and refugee asylum seekers that die trying to cross the border. But see what's going on in Europe and how they've used the Mediterranean Sea as a watery grave, right? They let boatloads of refugees and asylum seekers who are fleeing from countries that were destabilized by European interventions or U.S. interventions. And now the European powers let them drown. Or as is happening in the United Kingdom, they, they have a slogan, right? Stop the boats. You know, I think right now, the way that climate change is happening, the way that certain uh, geopolitical political conflicts are shaping up, one of the responses of the so-called global north is to just keep erecting more border walls, keep creating more sophisticated border technology. But then their own diplomatic and political and military approaches to the global south generate the very movement of people that they're trying to prevent with these walls. 
And you see that in a place like El Paso, right? One of the safest cities in the United States. But if you cross this heavily militarized border down into Ciudad Juarez, it's a totally different story. And that's by design. I think people like Howard Campbell and, and other great anthropologists who, who work on the borderlands, they will talk about how these walls and the border militarization that we've seen since the 1980s is by design. It's because they knew that certain economic policies that were going to be implemented in the 1990s were going to impoverish people in Mexico. And then those people, what were they going to do as a response? Well, they're going to move and try to seek a better life in the United States. Well, we need to militarize the border then. It's a two-step game, I guess. It's not a game, obviously, because millions of real lives are at stake. And many people have died as a consequence of this really short-sighted approach to dealing with some of the major problems in the world today. Dr. Alex Avina is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University. He's an expert on the politics of narcotics, drug wars, and state violence in Mexico. His 2014 book is Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. His forthcoming project is A War Against Poor People, Drugs, Dirty Wars, and State Violence in Late 20th Century Mexico. There's much more with Alex Avina. We'll continue this conversation next week. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Maria Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.